Hey, this is the moment of Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I'm so excited we're doing an Ask Me Anything. I put out the request for questions on this feed and also on social. You guys came through. My daughter, Anna Koppelman, is here. She does this with me. Now, yes, it's the ask me anything tradition is th- that your kids get involved in some way. Mainly me. One time it was also Sam. Yeah, it's you, basically. You basically do this with me now. You go through <laughs> and also, um, I know in your private life, you've been doing a bunch of stuff in the podcast biz on your own while you're in your senior year of college. We don't need to talk about where or anything, but, uh, and you got this all audio all figured out. So hopefully it'll track and, and then yeah, be recording. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, all right. So you guys, I, I put out the request for questions, and you really came through. And um, oh, I did want to start by saying the feedback on the Quentin Tarantino interview was so great. Keep it coming. I'm so glad that that interview resonated. And some of you said and knew that it was clear what it meant to me and how long I'd been sort of shadow preparing, like not knowing that I was exactly preparing for this. But I was, and then it turned out to be, I, I had occasion to have dinner with Anna and a couple of her friends, one of whom's a media studies major, and she didn't realize, but she she didn't know I'd just done the pod. And she started just talking about Tarantino movies, and we got to have this whole conversation, and then I guess she, she realized in the middle of it. Well, she had said to me the night before, she was like, I really want to d- debate your dad about Tarantino. And so a part of me assumed she knew, so I didn't really say anything, and then it was very fun to watch it all unfold. We had a great conversation. She's brilliant and brilliant about She movies. really challenged you on some stuff. It was great. It was really fun. Um, and uh, But yes, it was really great because it just so happened I'd never been more ready to have a conversation <laughs> about Quentin's You were very prepared. Work than I was in that moment. Um, all right, Boo, let's get into it. Okay, so the first question, we got an email um, from somebody that said, I wear a bracelet that says prove them wrong. And you mentioned on PMT about not striving to prove someone wrong or to constantly be out to get revenge. And that at some point you'll have to have a motivation that isn't centered around getting back at someone. I'm paraphrasing. So I guess my question is, what motivates you? First of all, I there is something so beautifully great about actually wearing a reminder <laughs> on a daily basis. So I think those things are so powerful and potent. And I I will say I did something like this once. The shoes. Yeah, the shoes. Exactly right. Um, I, Dave and I were trying to get a movie made, and it was really proving difficult to get the movie made. And I, it was a point in our lives where we felt like we weren't getting a lot of help from our agents or our managers. Uh, these are not the same people who represent us now. And uh, I realized I, I wanted to try to take some step every day. And at that time, Nike was doing this thing where you could do personal ID on your shoes. So I got these ridiculous pink um, basketball shoes, high tops. And I had them stitch the movie was Solitary Man, and I had them stitch the name Solitary Man on the shoes. The shoes were like white and pink, and then the white area, I had them do it in pink, and just the shoes were covered with the word Solitary Man, and what it did, I wore them every day. And the idea was I would wear these shoes, and every day I would look down at my shoes at one point or put my shoes up on the desk and see Solitary Man and know I had to take one step, do one thing to try to get the movie made that day. Like, hey, I can't rely on other people. This is going to come down to how aggressively I'm going to try to get the film made. 
and uh, wearing those shoes day one of the shoot. There's a picture of me in those shoes when I went to shoot the movie, and and it really was so powerful to just do that, uh, to have that totem in a way uh, to look at and to represent why this was potent and why it mattered. As far as what motivates somebody, look in the beginning, trying to prove the people wrong who didn't believe in you or who thought you didn't have the talent or who were mean and didn't recognize you. Like, it, it does get you out of bed in the morning. It can. But it never gives, it never in the end gave me a sense of completion or satisfaction to do that because then there's always someone else to prove wrong. There's always another slight you can find. And and so I try to have a more personal motivation or just be motivated by the work itself, which does happen now. Uh, you know, I'm four weeks out from starting to shoot the new show, Super Pumped, and no part of the motivation to do this came from a place of resentment or anger or proving anybody wrong. Uh, you know, if I were still looking for that after how good the last few years have been in so many ways for, for me professionally, not good with the what everyone in the world suffered through and all of us with COVID, but if I just look at professionally, um, to still pretend there are these obstacles, there's always an obstacle to getting something made. There's because you're trying to, you know, entice people to spend millions of dollars to make something. But it was a story that compelled me. Mike Isaac sent this book. And reading the book, I got excited. And I would say that's the thing, right? Instead of it being anger, excitement, enthusiasm, curiosity. But do you think that you were able to get to that place because you've already proven a lot of the people wrong? Like, Do you think proving people wrong was like a step you had to get to? I, I think that when you're young, it's a way to fortify against self-doubt is to look at the doubters and be like, they're wrong. Because you don't want to let their doubts in. Right. Yeah, I mean, look, there are probably some people who never felt that they were doing this for that reason. but And it's never the prime, I mean, uh, to be clear, it was never the prime driver, meaning at the creative, like writing even the first movie, it's like Dave and I were trying to prove anybody wrong going to the basement and the, writing that movie. But then as the doubts as people express skepticism, you you uh, you do. I did. We did. You know, churn and use that sort of lack of belief to help. Well, I'm not going to let them be. I'm not going to let that jerk be right. I am going to succeed uh, and not let those people. I mean, you know, the people who are mean to you or to me at summer camp. Right, but that motivation you're saying runs out eventually, and you need like excitement. I think in the end, that motivation is uh, dangerous. Dangerous to your own sense of peace and harmony. Which, uh, the older I get, the more important that stuff. Right, because there's always someone new to prove wrong. Yeah, Yeah. don't get into that. Don't they don't matter. It's better to have them give them no power, basically. Right, is what I'd say. But I really still salute the bracelet. (laughs) Yeah, the bracelet's epic. Um, Speaking about working on Super Pumped, we got a lot of questions asking about, you know, what's your favorite part about starting a new project or how do you begin to start a new project? Well, 
if you've been listening to the podcast for a while and you just heard that last answer, curiosity is certainly a part of it. Like Mike Isaac sent Dave and me this book. I didn't know a lot about how Uber came to be. I was fascinated by venture capitalists. I had met Bill Gurley, who's one of the Kyle Chandler's playing him in the show. And reading the book, I just suddenly started getting so excited about all the things that it was about. The story, the narrative itself is compelling. But then as I started like thinking about what it said, and I don't want to talk too much about this stuff now because there will be plenty of time to really talk about this But um, in terms of what it is. But suddenly what it meant and the reasons for it and where it fit in society. But And that's all sort of like intellectualizing. More than that, it was, oh, this seems like a to dive into this seems like it's going to make me like really glad to open a, a final draft document. Like, I want to talk about this. I want to think about this. I want to imagine what these characters would do. And so that sort of fire gets lit. And, and when that fire gets lit, and it could get lit in little ways, like little fires can get lit. But if one keeps going and growing inside, internally, that's a great way to know that I'm working on the right thing. And then as far as what, and it, you know, look, I, I just went and walked through the stages that we're building where, um, I mean, I walked you through, uh, Boo, where we're building and, and um, looking at it getting built, this new uh, world uh, is, look, if you do this stuff for a living and you wanted to be somebody who got to tell stories on, uh, on, on film or on television, and that stuff doesn't excite you, it's time to kind of hang it up. I love the idea of right. getting to work with new people. Like I love, we're still making billions right now, the show Billions, and that's, man, that I, I love everything about making that show. And then on top of that, to be able to do something with a new creative group of people also, and um, you always learn about yourself, you learn about the way you like to tell stories, and, um, and opening a document and starting to write, writing scenes is still like something that's, is still something that feels like magic to me. Like I was working on writing Billions today actually, um, some scenes from Billions last night and today. And I had the conscious thought as I was, I was like sitting on this couch and um, this place that I'm staying at had a record player and I, I put on the first Stray Cats album and that was playing as I was working. And I had the thought like, okay, this is still my happy place. My happy place, even uh, now at 55 years old and having made so much stuff over 25 years, the having a document open and making characters talk and getting lost inside of that world is still thrilling to me. And uh, and so with Super Pump, there's even uh, a whole new world to um, inhabit. Hmm. I saw you tweeting last night about the record player, and I was wondering if you were tweeting about it because people were asking about it and you're asking me anything, but it seems like you were just writing and listening to records. Oh, you mean why I... Um you were set, well, somebody wrote in and asked, I bet you have an incredible record collection. Tell us about it or why you don't. Oh, that's great. You know, what happened is this place that I happen to be staying has this incredible record player. And I'm a huge Chuck Berry fan, and the person whose house this is had a Chuck Berry album, so I put that on, which was great. 
But then it made me start thinking about vinyl and how much I loved it. What a humongously, just enormous part of my life vinyl was. Records. My room, my childhood room, Anna, was just covered with records everywhere. I didn't yeah, but I didn't, we didn't grow up with like a record player. No, yeah, no. you were never a big like vinyl is better guy. No, because I made the change. Like at a certain point, <laughs> I had to let that go. And I did let it go, or I felt I had to let it go. And because I'd amassed this huge collection of records. And then it was like, were mom and I going to, you know, as you know, we moved many times in the beginning of our marriage. Right. And you weren't going to take all but the I records like, everywhere. Or, you know, and, and especially because there were all, I already had CDs and um, CDs and, and digital audio tapes had replaced them. But there's a thing that happens when you listen to records that I just had sort of, I guess if I had sat down to think about it, I would have known. But the rituals regarding it, meaning you, you look at the record, you read the back, you take the record out of its inner sleeve, you look at it and make sure it's not too dusty, you see there aren't any scratches on it, you put it down. And the other thing, you know, you let it play, you gently um, put the arm and stylus down on, on the record as it starts to play. But the other thing about albums that had side one and side two in a very clear way is they were really built to have a certain flow. The artist always thought a lot about what the first song should be, what the last song would be on side one, what the first song would be on side two, because these were these big kind of reset moments. But also, it forces you to listen, because the side one ends, you have to get up, go, and this was considered a drag, right? Well, the CD made it that you don't have to go and turn over the album to keep hearing it. But I like the fact that the music kind of calls to you and you have to focus on it. You have to pay attention to it. And you, you get up and you turn it over and then you put side two on and then that starts playing and you really start listening to that. And it, it, it demands the attention that the artists have earned, I think. And uh, look, I love getting in my car and just plugging in the phone and being able to listen to all the music in the whole world. But I went and I bought a couple of albums and I yesterday and I decided I was going to be really careful and thoughtful about what albums I was going to buy. And I'm not looking to buy expensive, rare records. I'm fine to buy reissues. What did you get? I got um, the Stray Cats, which is this great um, rockabilly band who I didn't in their in their time. They weren't my I was listening to other music. They weren't my favorite band. But um I got that and I got some blues records. I've been listening to a lot of blues lately. So I got um, I got two Albert King albums and I got a Clarence Gatemouth Brown album, who's an old blues guy. He's been dead for a long time. But mom and I actually went and saw him play in the very early um, 90s. And uh, I almost said we went and saw him to see him play before he died, but that's sort of you yeah, need to say you that. Yeah, you can get that from there. And, uh, and um and Albert King's this great blues man. So, and it was great. I listened to all these records yesterday, and it was really, um, yeah, I love the way they sound. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll put a record on tonight. I'm sure you'll be able to experience the whole thing. But you were a record player. You were the first member of our family to get a record player for to play Taylor Swift. No, records. Vampire Weekend. Oh, you got it to play the last, last Vampire, Vampire Weekend album. Yeah, for like my twentieth birthday. That's or something so like great. that. Yeah, and we have simple. one in, uh, like, my, my friends at school, we have one that goes a little fast, and it is a ritual thing. 
what records are allowed to play. Really? Yeah, my friend Marisa, who's like kind of a music snob, won't let us play any Olivia Rodrigo on vinyl. Why? We've been banned from getting because the Olivia. Because it wasn't made for vinyl? Yeah, it's a whole thing. But she's great, Olivia Rodrigo. I know. Are you sure Marisa wants to be on record about this? I, I think she'd be happy to be on record about this. Fantastic. <laughs> but let me go on record by saying about records. I love Olivia Rodrigo's album. Um, speaking of music, someone named David Collins, who's a 17-year-old in Michigan, want, hey, wants to know, if you could interview any music artist, dead or alive, who would it be? Don't try to outthink this, Anna. Why don't you answer that question? I, you Dylan? Know. Yes, of course. Yeah. I mean, if we don't overthink it. Yeah, Dylan. Bob Dylan. Like, Michael Stipe is my dream guest for the podcast because that seems within the realm of the universe of the possible since two members of REM have been on the podcast. That said, uh, if I could sit down with Bob Dylan, I've met him, uh, but we didn't have any kind of conversation. And as you know, we had uh, Jacob Dylan on the show, and I, we talked about this a little bit. Jacob's been a friend for a very long time. But if I could sit and talk to Bob Dylan and ask him, I wonder if I'd... And I don't know if I'd actually really be able to formulate questions. I, I mean, Quentin was a good stand-in for that in a way because I was able to really talk to him. On the other hand, I know him. We've corresponded. We've spent real time together before. I've had I've, I had enough time to get over the fact, holy shit, I'm sitting with Quentin Tarantino. Mm-hmm. Whereas Bob has meant so much to me for so long. And I, he's like an alien life form, I think. So if I don't really think that, but I mean, I kind of think it. And so, uh, but yeah, I, I don't even know where I would begin to ask him questions. But I would have to say, yeah, I would have to say Bob Dylan. And you know what? I'll give you another one. I would love to talk to Jay Z about how. Later in life, he made the 444 album, which I think is one of the best albums of the last five years, and I listen to all the time, and I think Jay-Z's super genius, and I would love... There's so many things I'd like to ask him. Um, also, I, I and because we're closer to the same age, and we have friends in common, and I didn't grow up as a little kid listening to him, I think it's possible I'd be able to keep it together more. Hmm. What about, like, Lou Reed? Yeah, that'd be amazing, too. Of course. I mean, that was one of the... Yes, I mean, if he were alive... He, the question was, was dead or alive. He was famously very difficult to journalists, very difficult to talk to, like a real dick a lot of the time. Um, but, yeah, I would love to talk to him about the different periods of his career. I'd love to talk to him about how... Whatever his regrets are about the, his personal interactions. I would love to talk to him about where he fits in in the firmament. I mean... Joni would be great to talk to. Paul Simon uh, would be an incredible conversation, I think. I've tried to get Cheryl Crow on the podcast. She's another person whose work's meant a tremendous amount to me. And if anyone's listening and knows Cheryl, reach out. Someone speaking about music and your children also asks, what are your favorite music memories you've shared with your children? Oh, I mean, you just put this here. 
You well, just put I, this we, here we were supposed you know, to ignore this question. I mean, you put this here because so I could talk about you, basically. I mean, if you wanted to talk about Sam, that would be okay. Mm. <laughs> I've definitely had great memories going to concerts with Sam too, actually. Green Day. But I would say you were there too. Weren't you at the Green Day show? Too? Yeah, no, yeah. that would, would also have to do with me. I mean, that was not a good night. No, that's I not. had to leave that concert because I had I got very sick and I had to go get surgery. Um, I'm fine now. That was more than 10 years ago. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you and I going to Jason Isbell together, which the whole we did as a, a whole family too. But um, the first time you and I went there to see Jason together and uh, Amanda came out and he sang Cover Me for Amanda. Yeah. And um, we got to experience that together. I mean, so look, this is a great question because it's about the value of all this stuff, about the value of music and art. And I think parents and children find all sorts of different ways to communicate, especially in times where maybe kids feel isolated or it's harder for them to really talk about everything they're wondering about or afraid of and experiencing. And I think, you know, talking about things, like it's why traditionally in a traditional construct, fathers and sons talk about sports. Right. Uh, But one thing that, you know, you and I have always had is this love of songs and songwriting. And, uh, you know, we went to Miranda Lambert together, which was amazing. And, uh, but, but, and Lucy Dacus and Carsey Headrest. But Jason's music was a real big deal. You know, we were th- you were 13, I think, when Southeastern came out. And his music was a really big deal in our family. And somehow you and I started talking about the songs a lot. And we went together. And we've seen, you know, we've seen five or six Jason Isbell shows together. And uh, each one has really, like, marked a time in our lives and um yeah i mean i I think the time all four of us went actually we have great pictures from that night on that long beacon run when he did Mm -hmm. three or four shows and we saw all of them but 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 um mom and sammy came too that was pretty special yeah definitely well i keep asking you about music but i feel like if these questions came in you can ask them well, I guess speaking about that, someone did ask, like, what what is inspiring about live performances to you or what live performances you find inspiring? Hey, we're going to get to the screenwriting question soon, I promise. Um, Do you want to just get to the screenwriting question no, now? I miss live music a lot. I almost went the other night. Uh, I'm just being in, watching, I, I will go back to Jason, just it, because if I close my eyes right now, I can really picture what it's like when he sings Cover Me Up, when he sang it. Uh, that first, right after that album came out, Southeastern, especially on nights. Well, once there was a night when Amanda wasn't yet there, and he said, this is like, I still sing this as though she's here. And then and she was there seeing, look, I think what musicians are able to do is um, so deep and profound and difficult and brave. And so seeing them really do that thing in front of you um, changes you. And uh, I do find I walk out different in some ways because of what 
these people are able to give to us. It's a very, yeah, they're getting paid, and yeah, they get the applause back, but there is a an openness. You know, it's rare that a human being shows you the best part of themselves, the most special part of themselves, just kind of willingly and openly and allows you, makes themselves so vulnerable that um, they could maybe end up crumbling if it doesn't go well. And and the fact that musicians do that and the great ones, it, it, it lifts you up, it lifts the whole room up, is just really special to me. Okay, now to screenwriting. Do you start with the end of the story and then work to the beginning or start with the idea and concept and go from there? A world is usually the place to st- that David and I tend to start, meaning and not always, but this universe, this world, these people seem compelling. If not a universe, a character, almost never a plot first. Character, a fascinating individual in a situation that's challenging a world and then who are the characters in that world and then so you have that then either the very first i have to have the first image i have to know where it starts before and i and yeah you need to know where it's going you can change along the way but it is useful to know what the what the last series of images are going to be or where the character is going to land. If it's not, if you're not a visual thinker, and I'm not always, but story-wise, wh- where's the character? You know, having gone through these experiences, where's the character going to uh, land? And so you need to know that for an episode. You need to know that for the season's arc. You need to know that for a series arc, and you definitely need to know that to tell um, um, a two-hour movie story. I seem to remember a bunch of questions about outlining. So even yeah. if that's something I talk about a lot. So someone asked, what is your outlining process and how does it differ between writing a feature versus writing billions? The, I, I can just say the one time I didn't have an outline properly composed, the movie took me like four years to write, and that was Solitary Man. The great thing about writing with a partner is you need an outline because how are the two of you going to go and off and work and have it connect If because we write our scenes separately if there's not an outline. Solitary Man I wrote alone. I didn't properly outline. But notice I started before I had an outline, and then I stopped to try to outline the rest of it, and it was took forever. I love the movie, but it shouldn't have been that hard. I should have just grinded on the outline first, I think. Why, especially, like, what happened was I, I saw something in life, and that's what started me writing, and I wrote in a fury the first, whatever, 15 or 20 pages. And then I did jot down what I knew the next 40 pages were right then, but what I then should have done, instead of writing those 40 pages, was outline the rest, and I didn't. Uh, so the process is pretty similar. You know, you, you, I think the word outline is tough for people because it reminds you of school and essays, and that, for, for me anyway, that stuff's brutal. I mean, it was the, were the worst experiences. But what you're really talking about is storytelling. So how do I want to tell this story? And what's the story you're telling? And if you frame this all as questions to yourself, what's the story? What could happen here? What would the character do here? Why? What would stop the character from doing this? That's how you come up with an outline. And that's just the process. I mean, you go through, you start. We start with, in a long-running series, I guess the equivalent of what the world is, is like, well, what's the world of this particular episode? What, what things are happening in the world that the show is concerned with that could work in an episode? And from there, you start to 
build it out. When we write outlines, we put dialogue in. If we think of a fun line of dialogue, we'll put it in there. Some people don't want to do that, but for me, that's the most fun part, so I do it. Outlining is the least fun part of the process, but what it does is it's the bridge to the great part of the process, which is the scene writing. And that, for me, is where I feel like I'm flying. But I have to earn that, and, and, and the way I get there is by doing an effective outline. Once you have the outline, do you kind of jump around or do you write in the outline? You can't, no, yeah, so once we take, do an outline, yes, I usually will write the scenes in order, but if I get to a scene and, and it feels like work, I'm told, because we've outlined it, so I'm, so you know it's I'm not go running there. from it, yeah. but yes, if there's a scene in there, sometimes it goes two ways. I guess sometimes if there's a scene I really wanna write, I'm like, well, I'll just write this, this one first that will then get you to the one you really want to write, and then, and sometimes if I know, okay, I know what to do with that scene. Let me go run up there and I'll write that. That that's fine. I I don't. You just got to get them all done. I mean, just get them all done in whatever way. But usually, I would say usually I like to go from the beginning to the end most of the time. And you kind of touched on this when talking about schoolwork. But somebody wanted to know how do you think ADHD has affected your writing? Did it help once you got an official diagnosis? Yes. I never turned in a paper less than three weeks late in my entire academic career. I know it gives you chills, right? You yeah, I can't. The anxiety of that is beyond anything I can imagine. Yeah, so I lived all day long. Would you just like walk around with like the worst pit in your stomach? Yes, all day long. And and had, thinking of how to explain it to the Oh my teacher. God. I mean, even in high school, in junior high school, and it's impossible. In the college, like I had seven incompletes my senior year. Last semester, senior year, I had seven incompletes that I had to deal with. You were telling Sam and I a few months ago about um, going to the library and what you would do in the library. Oh, yeah. Well, this is part of, sometimes people will say to me, I don't know, I say this, but it's not like, well, okay, if you listen to the podcast, you know that I, I somehow like. You know so have, many different things. I have expertise in weird areas. Uh, and a lot, I didn't realize the other day we were talking and I didn't realize why, because Someone was describing to us going to the library and how that could they could f- like sit down and do their work. No, Sam was saying that he couldn't understand how you, with such ADHD, would ever ever go to a library and get any work done. And so the answer was, I would go to the library. So I thought, okay, I'm going to get rid of all distractions at home. The, this was original, like in whatever. Again, nobody, there was no such thing as ADHD. I just knew I couldn't do my work. So I would sometimes, and you know, my room had a lot of distractions. So I would go to the I would go to the library. But what happened is I'd sit down at the library, I'd open my books to do the work, and then I would just spend all day reading in the stacks, like whatever was interesting to me. I would go to the this section, the, you know, that section, the true crime section, the section about blues musicians, the section about, I would just, and, and I would spend all day in the library, but doing no work. And then the last 10 minutes I would do some work. I would just go, but look, it, it, it was very difficult for me. High school was so hard for me. I did so poorly in high school. Um, and I could not get the work done. But on the other hand, probably the body of knowledge I picked up by wandering around the Roslyn Public Library on so many weekends led me to where I am now, you know, uh, and is part of why I have such varied and deep knowledge of all different areas. 
Do you also think over time you came up with systems to get work done, like kind of what you were saying of using an outline and using a scene you don't want to write to motivate yourself to write? Well, listen, a bunch of different things happen. Um, a lot of my career, one, just once you get a diagnosis, first of all, having a partner really helps. David is um, amazing in so many different ways, so creatively brilliant, but he's also very organized and focused, so that's helpful. ADHD people work well in teams, it turns out, like because for whatever reason, so I never miss a deadline now. I never, ever miss a deadline. Well, um, for my own, you know, on my own. I'm writing all the scenes on my own. I don't miss a deadline because Dave's going to have his pages in. I'm going to have my pages in. Um, I'm just going to do that. And, yeah, so diagnosis me helps because you know, okay, well, I have this thing. There's a brain chemistry thing going on here. It's not just that I'm lazy. It's not that I'm stupid. It's that there's this obstacle. Okay, how do people get past this obstacle? Okay, there are various different ways, you know. Figure out what time of day works best for you. Like I know very early in the morning works for me, right? Mm -hmm. You've come out of your room and your life and seen me on the couch writing. It's like 5 a.m. Yeah, that's yeah. really great for me. Wake up before anything else happens, right? There are these like little quiet times when I can just do it and I take advantage and I do the work in any of those times. Also, I've always been good at doing work and stuff that's compelling and fascinating and it's great way to know what projects to take on and what projects not to take on. Because if, I, if it feels like it's gonna be something I can't do the work, then because of ADHD, I won't, I won't, I won't do it. You mm -hmm. know? Um, and Adderall helped me. I, I would say a lot of my career has been without Adderall. Tons of, uh, there are seasons of billions that were written where I took time off from taking medicine, and there are seasons of billions that have been written while I've taken Adderall. Right. And it depends on a whole bunch of different things with how I'm feeling. Because there are, to me anyway, downsides to taking amphetamines. I'm lucky that I'm not an addictive person in that area, so I've never increased my dose. I've never taken too much of it. I can titrate down and then not think about it for a year and a half. And then there are times where I feel Okay, I'm exhausted from working for too long without a break. I am having a really hard time settling down. I am not able to focus in the way. And then I'll talk to a doctor and I'll go, I think I should probably go on Adderall for the next period of time and I'll do it. And it's helpful. And then I remember that mental state so that when I go off of Adderall, I can kind of parrot those behaviors to get back into um, a place of being able to do the work. But if I could wave a wand, I mean, people talk about the gift of ADHD, and there is one, many of them. But if I could wave a wand and be done with it and not have ADHD, I would do it in a second. Really? Yes, I would do it in a second. And maybe I would have then ended up in a job. Yeah, I was going to say, but would you then also erase everything that, like... I, no, I wouldn't. I mean, I wouldn't erase my family. No, 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 but I'm saying, would you erase the stuff you learned in the library because you no, were... No, right, but maybe I would have... Um, Got in your schoolwork. Job. I would have done my schoolwork in a certain way, and yeah, maybe. I mean, people who listen know that I'm educated as a lawyer, but maybe I would have like practiced, and 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 maybe that life wouldn't have for me been as. Or I would be a totally different person. Yeah. Because well, I don't want to downplay how painful it is to have ADHD. Right. And the frustration and anger at myself over it. Because yes, it's true. I can write without it, without medicine, and I know how to deal with it all. But. If you have ADHD, you beat yourself up pretty badly a lot of the time. And uh, and it's very frustrating that when people talk to me sometimes, 
their senses that I've tuned out, even if I'm just looking away. Sometimes I have to close my eyes to concentrate, and that could feel like I'm tuning somebody. There's all sorts of ways that I compensate. Right. But it's a battle, and and it's a battle that's way harder than I think I talk about. And and um. And just even the amount of focus you have to put into controlling. I felt so 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 stupid and so um lazy and like a failure. I mean, that feeling, you're joking about the anxiety. I mean, that feeling of having to walk across a college campus to tell a professor you respect that you can't turn in the paper. And I wouldn't lie to them. I never made up some bullshit. I would just say, like, here's what I was doing instead of doing the work. Now, look, at college, obviously my wandering spirit is part of what enabled me to go accomplish the weird great things I accomplished during college. But nobody wants to be the weird person accomplishing strange things. You would rather be, I would have at the time, rather be normal. Like, I'm not, the truth is I can, I come across as mostly normal, but I do have these things that make life in certain ways harder so if you're listening to this and you feel that way i do and, and and you look at like the sort of now at 55 success that i have don't hold that against yourself if you're not there yet because it seemed impossible to me but also don't give up and 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 find a way to compensate find a way to muster the resources and but also know this about me I've never paid my own bills. My wife, Amy, literally balances the checkbook and pays the bills <laughs> to this day. But it's also knowing your strengths. Yeah, it's knowing your strengths, but I couldn't do it. Like, right. I couldn't do it. I couldn't take that time. And there's not enough Adderall in the world that would allow me to do that. And there are tons of things like that. How did you finish the seven incompletes? When did you do it? When there's that kind of pressure on you. My friend Pete Gracken and I would sit in his Like, um, they were incompletes from, like, the four years, bef- the three years before? Yeah. Papers. Peter had a computer nobody else did. He wasn't rich or anything. He somehow had a computer. And uh, he, we would sit up. He would make coffee. Uh, he would take paper towel and lay paper towel across a pot. We didn't have a coffee maker. And he would take grinds and like pour hot water through that. And we'd make this. It was the best coffee. Then I wasn't really. It's, that's how I became a coffee drinker. And we would drink coffee. And Pete would stay with me. And he would type sometimes because he was better at it. And he would like help me get the stuff done by just being there for moral support. Um, yeah, ADHD people sometimes under terrible pressure can then, with deadlines, can then get it done. But it was When awful. did you get diagnosed? Final question on this. Like, when did you get diagnosed? No professor was like, there's clearly an issue here. Like, no one caught it. Or was there just not the language? There wasn't the language then. And then, no, I didn't get diagnosed till I was like close to 40. Um, officially diagnosed with it because it got so frustrating to me and to probably Dave and to Amy, your mother, and and all of us that I finally was like saw a shrink and I took a test in a book and I I hit everything <laughs> and um, and then started. So yeah, I've only been and it was so yes, the original diagnosis, man, I felt better knowing what it was.
another writing question, which is like with everything happening in the world and like the fears about the direction our country's heading in or just like fears about this time period, how do you stop and then focus on work or focus on the show and just write? I mean, at times during the prior administration, it was very challenging. And look, there are times that life has to interfere, not in an ADHD way, but like there are things that are more important. But also, I don't like using that stuff as an excuse. And this goes back to one of the gifts of ADHD is you have to do what you you have to find a way to do what you love because if you do what you love, the ADHD doesn't affect you as much. And so, I love this work. Like I love writing. I love telling these stories. I love working with actors. So, that's. I don't know. That's like the salvation of from this other stuff. I mean, I you know almost quit the podcast then, but when Trump was elected, I couldn't figure out how it made sense to keep talking about all this stuff. But then the letters I get about the difference that it makes, and then getting to have a day like the one I had the other day talking to Quentin. That all look, we we can't let the very real challenges of life take all of our attention, focus, and energy. Because then what are we, why are we living? We have to reclaim the things that we're passionate about, I think. And so that's what I do. I mean, on that note, like someone asked, what do you think separates novelists from screenwriters, nonfiction, and fiction writers? I don't know the answer. I'm not a novelist. Mom is. I mean, okay, well, like if you think about mom, my wife Amy Koppelman, a great novelist and filmmaker, she's able to concentrate and write a novel for like eight years. I need, as a screenwriter, I get more immediate gratification, even though it takes, it's hard to get stuff made sometimes. I mean, I, I get, I can finish something much more uh, quickly. I am going to write a book, and uh, I have a deal to write a book, but it's not a novel. It's, um, called The Moment, and it's about stuff I've learned on the podcast, about the creative life, about the stuff we're talking about. And I'm enjoying that process because of the way I'm writing it. I get little rewards during it because they're not these incredibly, it's not a one long story. It's stories um, within this this context. But I think, yeah, novelists have, a, have the ability to extend a specific kind of focus for a longer period of time. But do you also think that, like, because what you work on is mainly fiction, that kind of helps you escape from the outside world? Or are you drawing on the outside world so much? Yeah, I I don't even think of it as fiction, right? I mean, it is fiction. It's all made up. Not super pumped. Super pumped based on Mike Isaac's true story, uh, true, you know, nonfiction book about Uber. Yes, when writing Ocean's 13, obviously Danny and Rusty and Linus are made up characters, but... And even though... The characters and billions are totally fictional. I am writing about the real world through that. I mean, if you're doing this stuff well, you're putting so much of your personal, you're putting so much of yourself into the work that the line between what's real and and what's made up is pretty blurry. I mean, people who know me well and know David well completely see and hear us in our work and have from the beginning. Yeah. Should we do a couple more? Let's do a couple more. Um, what are five books you'd recommend? Whoa. All right. Um, 
five books. I'm going to do five books living authors. Okay. I'm going to say Kafka on the Shore, and I'll do all fiction. Kafka on the Shore by Haruki Murakami. City of Thieves by David Benioff. Cowboys Are My Weakness by Pam Houston. Uh, I would say Last Gentleman in Moscow, or Gentleman in Moscow, Amor Tolls. One more book. Hesitation Wounds, Amy Koppelman. Um, speaking of Mirakami, someone wants to know if you read Mirakami's first person singular, and if so, what your favorite short story is. Oh, yeah, what a great book. I mean, I'd read some of those stories when they were in magazines and stuff. Uh, I loved it, though. I, I read it straight. I read the stories again. I don't. I can't tell you which story is my favorite. I don't remember the titles. It's weird. I don't remember the titles um, somehow. But, yeah, of course I read it. Um, the only book of, Mur- of Murakami's I have not read, I think the only one I haven't read, is the one with the Q, and it's like 1Q84 or whatever that is. I, I haven't read that book. Um, corned beef or pastrami? Right? Oh, yeah, it's a great question. Corned beef. Why? I just think it's, it's slightly sweeter. I don't know. I like it better. Okay, interesting. You like pastrami better? Yeah, I would say pastrami. Great. Why? It's saltier. Okay. Yeah. Um, ha- two final questions. How did you become a close reader or viewer? Is it an acquired talent or a natural ability? Both. Obsession. That's just obsession. In my case, like, I mean, yes, I learned about deconstruction and everything in college on some level. You know, I'm sure I didn't barely turn the papers in. But um, I think because you want that as a language, like I, I love having that language. So why does something work? I mean, that's that's curiosity, right? That's uh, you watch something, it draws you in, you watch it again. And then through conversation, for me, I might not really know all the various things that I think. I journal, so maybe something will show up in a journal, but basically that happens through conversation. I watch something, and then as I start to talk about it with somebody, that's when I, in making my arguments, I suddenly realize, oh, I watched this thing really closely. I remember all the words, and I remember what the director did in this, and then I'll go back. And then like after a conversation, I love going back and, watching something again and then challenging what my feeling was. I would have a hard time being like a really close reader of something that I didn't care about. I could do it, but I wouldn't enjoy it. Last question. You're heading into game seven in the NBA playoffs. One of these guys is on your team. Which one do you choose? Dominique Wilkins or Bernard King? Oh, uh, yeah. You're going to do one more after this, but I'll tell you why. Okay. Uh, Here's the thing. Uh, the person asking this question knows why this is an impossible question for me to answer. And they're, they're, they're because I'm, I'm friends with Dominique Wilkins. Oh, okay. And Dominique and Bernard, and, and Bernard's my, basically my favorite player of all time after Roman Rowe. <laughs> so I'm not going to, one, I'm not going to pick Bernard and make Dominique feel bad. And two, I can't say Dominique and then do that to Bernard King. Um, and so that question is going to remain. It's like asking who your favorite child it's is. It's going to remain. Uh, unanswered and that question is going to remain unanswered too. <laughs> okay fine a new final question favorite New York day 
My favorite day ever in New York. Yeah, or like your ideal New York. I'm gonna say, when we all went to see the Gates. Oh my God, I was thinking about that the other day. Yes. Watching the Gates, Jean-Claude and Christo's Gates get built mm -hmm. and not knowing and walking through the park and saying, why are these things here? What are these like stanchions? Like what's this flat, what's... And thinking it was kind of gonna be bullshit when I heard about it then, and then suddenly it was there. I could cry right now. Oh my God, it was the most, for, for people at home, he is welling up. It was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. And the, the four of us went a few different times and walked through it. One, yeah. one day with snow, once without snow. And just, I can, if I close my eyes and I think about the oranging of Central Park. And us being so little. Yeah, you guys being little, but getting it. You guys got it, you know, and um, we have one little tiny piece of one of the flags that they sold and, and in the apartment still, yeah. like on a... Um, on your desk. Near my desk. Yeah. Um, in a, uh, you know, corkboard. And um, so, yeah, sometimes I'll just like touch at that little flag and it'll bring me right back to that moment. And everything, look, it was a, a grand stunt. It was a, a crazy example of something working. It was a, a bizarre kind of art. But for me, that and Hamilton might be sort of like the great surprising pieces of art that showed up during my um, lifetime. And uh, the fact that all four of us got to go and see the gates and experience it and think about it. I mean, look, that is the amazing thing about the time we lived in being, you know, we, being in, in New York. Luckily, like, mom and I each marrying a person who was good for each other, having a family that talked about this stuff. The UV that day is a culmination of, like, many good choices coming together. I, I mean, not again, not so, yeah, sure. But just, like, I just remember being there and all of us, you were so little, but all of us having this sense of wonder together. And uh, yeah, that's a hard, that's a hard day to top. That's beautiful. All right, listen, everybody. And by the way, it took them 30 years to get clear. I mean, it's everything I talk about. The gates, I mean, talk about people being told something's impossible and you never felt they were operating from a place of uh, fuck you. They were operating completely from a place of uh, this is going to be magical and beautiful and you're going to love it. And that's a great, this is going to be magical and beautiful and you're going to love it because I love it, is a great place to do art from. Um, I hope this was useful and informative. Anna, you're the greatest. I love you. <laughs> Thank you for doing this with me. Of course. This is so fun. You can find me at Brian Hoppelman on Twitter, themomentbk at gmail.com. Anna is on Twitter at... Well, I don't really use Twitter anymore. Anna doesn't use Twitter. And yeah, I guess don't 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 go looking for Anna's social media. Well, yeah, if you want to find it, I'm at Anna Koppelman. And uh, we'll see you next time on The Moment. Thanks. Bye.